According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 27 and see if uh, it's been a week since we've been here, but I suspect Judas is still dead. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. We are in the middle of episode 30, the suicide of Judas Iscariot, and uh, approaching, uh, we'll wrap this up, and then uh, we'll uh, be ready for trials 4, 5, and 6. There are a total of six trials that our Savior stood before. Um, We've covered three of them. We've covered uh, Annas, Caiaphas, and then the condemnation by the entire council. Once the sun came up and they realized, okay, now we're legal, let's condemn them. (laughs) So he's had three uh, proceedings, and uh, we're now in a bit of an interlude while uh, Judas hangs himself, and then uh, the soldiers are carrying him off to the Romans, and uh, he will stand before a Pilate and be ready for trials four, five, and six, because uh, Pilate will uh, will try him and then send him to Herod, and then Herod will send him back to Pilate. So uh, trials four, five, and six are Pilate, Herod, Pilate, if you think of it that way. Annas, Caiaphas, uh, entire council, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. There's the, there's the six trials. All right. Matthew chapter 27, when Judas saw, verse 3, when Judas saw, um, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. All right. So everything's all better. You feel bad. You say you're sorry. You give the money back. Um, Everything's all better now, right? No. Okay. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer and sanctify our thinking, prepare our hearts for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for your plan and a plan, Father, that is so perfect in every detail. Every, uh, every day from Alpha to Omega is completely in your sovereign control. Every hour of every day, every moment of every hour. And, Father, even with the volitional creatures that you've created, Father, um, you have sovereign control. And uh, we, we just rejoice over how faithful you are to bring about your design in the glorification of your Son, and so, Father, I pray that we would uh, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We're going to see today uh, aspects of Judas and his betrayal that were prophesied, uh, spoken of, the potter uh, and the 30 pieces of silver and all of these things, Father. Uh, you knew about uh, before the foundation of the world. And and, uh, and our Savior knew about it, Father. He, he knew who his betrayer was, and yet uh, he remained uh, in submission to your plan. And, I pray we might learn from these lessons. I pray that we might imitate our Savior. Uh, if uh, the occasion arises where you test us with the betrayal testing, Father, uh, it's never uh, enjoyable, and yet, uh, and yet we have what we need, Father, to make the application to give Christ the glory. So I thank you for this teaching, and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are ready for point four. I believe, as we have gone through um, point one, Judas the betrayer, and the vocabulary related to paradidomy and the uh, activity there, what he beheld. Uh, Point two, how he felt remorse and how repentance is not in the picture, the distinctions between metanoeo and metamelami, important vocabulary distinctions to be drawn. So subpoint A is a vocabulary of metanoeo for repentance that we do not have anywhere in this chapter. And then point B is the vocabulary for regret, which we do have in this chapter. And so we identify the value of regret, the value of, of uh, the emotional reaction to things, uh, is not the same as the value to repentance. They can't, they're not interchangeable. And uh, in fact, uh, the, the regret, the emotions involved, are not substantive. In other words, they don't count. Tears don't count. Uh, Esau desired the blessing that he had thrown away, that he'd sold, and even though he sought for it with tears, 
He found no place in his heart for repentance, we're told, in Hebrews 12:17. And so we identify that the emotion between that passage and this passage, I think, plus perhaps others that we could turn to, how the emotional responses and pleas are irrelevant to the spiritual realities that we operate under. And then we wrapped up last week the idea of guilt and how guilt motivates, whether it's the sense of shame or it's the sense of uh, I've got to do something about this. I made a mess out of this, so I'm going to fix it kind of a thing. Uh, no, you did make a mess out of it, yes, and uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So if, you, if you're the one that tries to fix it, you're just going to make a bigger mess. Okay? Uh, what you need to do is start walking by faith and realizing that the Lord's the one who's supposed to be doing the work. God the Father's the one who's supposed to be doing the work. So how about getting yourself out of the way? But uh, oftentimes guilt motivates doing something, either hiding or making fig leaf uh, clothing or, or doing something. Returning back to your father's house and saying, make me one of your hired men. I'll make it up to you. And uh, the father says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You're not one of my hired men. You're my son. And uh, if you're trying to if you're trying to add your own penance, I mean, goodness, what are we, the Roman Catholic Church? What are we, we going to do? We're going to assign our own penance as far as uh, assuaging our own guilt and somehow make it up to God based on what we've done? No, it's impossible. You can't pay for your sins ahead of time, at the time, after the fact. Jesus paid it all. So accept the grace provision and accept the forgiveness and move on. Don't allow the guilt to enslave you. How many people are enslaved by guilt years later, still uh, allowing their guilt to, to shape their thinking and their activities? All right, then point three, Judas went away and hanged himself. Interestingly enough, assuming it was a tree, Judas hung on a tree before Jesus did. He beat the Lord by some 30 verses uh, in terms of uh, his being hanged. The Lord was hanged on the cross in verse 35, but Judas hanged himself in verse 5. Uh, and then the additional gory information related to the book of Acts, how it is that he fell, how he burst asunder. How he burst asunder. And I don't have any issue uh, reconciling these two. I don't view them as contradictory. Uh, I think you can look at them as complementary. He hanged himself. And then having hanged himself, we have the detail that's added here in Acts chapter 1 that uh, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Okay? So there it is. And is that contradictory to hanged himself? No, I suspect that both are true, because God's not a liar. Both passages are true. We always reconcile uh, divergent uh, accounts on that basis, to say, now, how could this be true, uh, in addition to the other being true? And I suspect... It's natural to assume that he hanged himself and then hanging there from a bridge or a tree or whatever it was, uh, the rope broke or, or he burst asunder and then, uh, and then the rope broke or whatever the order was. Um, he did fall headlong. And uh, the issue's there. And so it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that is in the Aramaic vernacular, the field was called Hakaldama, that is the field of blood. And so, uh, two different origins, actually, for why it's called field of blood. And uh, we have the theological reason, uh, because of the blood money and how that was spent, uh, and the reality that God knows. Now, how much of that was public knowledge? Probably very little, okay? Uh, the, the Pharisees certainly weren't trumpeting the fact that, uh, that, they, uh, that that was their blood money that they had spent to the traitor to, to organize the betrayal. Um, so, yes, it is legitimate. Let's return back to Matthew 27. Um, and uh, we see it here. For this reason, verse 9 says, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The fact that it was blood money that bought it. Blood money that, that bought it. Okay. So two reasons why it's called the field of blood. And uh, there's the reality that God knows that it was blood money that purchased it. But then there's the spectacular, um, uh, gruesome uh, thing that, uh, that everybody observing saw, that saw him burst asunder, that saw the, the gruesome remains and so forth. Uh, so there's the public reason why it's called that, and then there's the real reason why it's called that. And both are true. Well, not any problem with that, reconciling the uh, the origin of the name Hakaldama, Field of Blood. 
Which gets us now to point four. Blood money was a problem. Blood money was a problem. And we have selective morality uh, or uh, selective uh, holiness, as it were. Uh, in other words, you get very religious when it's convenient. And, uh, and of course, when not convenient, then you're perfectly fine in, in hiring a hitman and, and, and uh, paying the blood money. <laughs> okay, So they're not too religious to pay the blood money, but they are too religious to accept the blood money in the public fashion that it had been given. Okay. Now, if he would have been just a little bit more circumspect about it, if he would have had a little tact and, you know, kind of come quietly or slipped it, you know, under the table, then they could have, they could have accepted the money without any problem. Okay. And I suspect they probably did have two sets of books. I suspect they had the, the slush fund and the money. And when, when the question was asked, why the 30 pieces of silver? Okay. Why not more? Why not less? Why that amount? All right. And I suspect it maybe that's, what they had available on hand in the in their slush fund that they could get away with, okay? Uh, that uh, that if they used temple funds, then it would raise too many questions. That there would be Levites and accountants and uh, you know, like my wife, there'd be people wanting receipts that uh, <laughs> would want to know, okay? And that's just my curse because I married a CPA. All right, I love her, I love her, but if I if I'm Three miles down the road, and I realize ah, I forgot to get the receipt. I'm not turning around and going back for it, okay? And she's gotten used to that. All right. But she does still want it, okay? She still wants it. And she'll force me to photocopy the credit card statement and highlight the the line item that has the missing receipt. Um, now, that's the problem the Pharisees have, Okay? Because when he flings the silver into the temple, this is now broad daylight. This is now morning. The sun's come up. Everybody's there. In fact, extra people are there. There's more witnesses than there would normally be because of all the sensational activity of the trial and all the things there. So um, when he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, and they're all, who are you? What's that to us? We don't know what you're talking about. Okay. What is that to us? See to that yourself. They're, they're, you know, looking at one another in their pious, holy denials, saying, who's this guy? We don't know who this guy is. What are you talking about? Blood money? Okay. <laughs> you've, you've, you've sinned by, by betraying innocent blood. You've, you've acquired blood money. Well, that's, we don't know anything about that. That's your business. Go away. <laughs> All right. And then so he goes away, but he flings the, uh, the silver into the, into the temple sanctuary. All right. However that worked. Um, you know, what, what was the distance involved and did he, did he fling it from the outer courtyard into the, you know, hopefully this will be on video. We'll see the, we'll see the director's commentary at some point. Um, but now they're stuck because now there's, it's, it's in full view of everybody. Okay. So someone has to pick that mess up and then what do we do with it? What do we do with it? So you got Levites out there picking it all up and the accountants and whatever and saying, well, where do we deposit this? What account does it go under? And so forth. Well, they said, we can't. It is not lawful. It is not lawful. And this is a prime question for lawyers. Is it lawful? Is it not lawful? On a yes and no basis. And sometimes yes, but only under certain circumstances. Or sometimes no, not under any circumstances. And depending on how they can think of it and how they can arrange their fine print, <laughs> okay, um, is it lawful? No, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. It is blood money, and that's a problem. So they conferred together, and with the money, they bought the potter's field. They said, how can we not keep it, but how can we make use of it, right? How can, how can we work it together for good? as it were, which is still making use of it, right? I mean, aren't they still, did, did they not have a need to purchase a field to bury strangers? I mean, obviously that was a need they had. And had this money not shown up today, what would they, how would they have bought that field? They would have used temple funds to buy that field. Okay, So now they just have this surprise benefit of, of these funds that they can't accept for Temple use, uh, but they all agree that okay, it's a profane use. We can uh, 
we can use this for our secular profane activities. And uh, so they, they buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Okay. What we would call today the, the oh, what's the term for it? We've got, we've got common burial grounds today for uh, indigent people and, and different, yeah, strangers and unknown, so forth. Okay. Um, there's a term. I'll think of it maybe by the end of class. There's a, there's a new chaplain, by the way, in Huntsville. You might pray for him. And uh, the, the former chaplain finally said that's enough. And, and it's a hard, I mean, beyond the executions you got to do. Um, the Huntsville chaplain has 600 funerals a year. I mean, they, there's, there's, there's inmates dying every month just because of life sentences or old age or poor health or jail fights or whatever else goes on. And so this, this chaplain is doing 600 burials a year. And uh, I can imagine how that would, that would weigh on you. All right. Blood money is a problem. Why is blood money a problem? Well, let's turn back to Deuteronomy and see a couple of passages. First of all, beyond blood money, subpoint A, money that's earned by sinful activity, any sinful activity. Let's look at Deuteronomy 23:18, and then we'll see murder specifically, uh, or what is often thought of as blood money. It was called here in this passage the price of blood, okay, the value of blood, the honor of blood. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.18 Money earned by sinful activity is inadmissible to the Lord. Money earned by sinful activity is inadmissible to the Lord. Okay, it'd be like showing up with a, a, a broken sheep or something, right? Something with a spot or a blemish or a defect or some kind of a, a, a mangled animal. Saying, well, okay, this thing's been mangled. I can't eat it anymore. I can't sell it anymore. It's no profit to me anymore. I can't sell the wool anymore. Uh, there's no value to this thing. So, oh, hey, I know. Well, let's give it to the Lord. <laughs> All right. I got to bring a sheep anyway. Might as well bring that mangled thing. I have no other use for it. And so people decide that God gets the leftovers instead of the first fruits. Okay. And it's insulting to the Lord. And he takes great exception to that. He calls it worthless abomination offerings at that point. All right, but, you know, it's the attitude it carries forward to this day in some respects. Uh, you know, donations that come to the church, uh, uh, you know, uh, usually it's the older stuff. It's the stuff they have no use for anymore, and, well, it's outdated, and, well, it's really, I can't use it in my business anymore. I can't use it. Uh, you know, I just bought a state-of-the-art uh, 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 computer system, and so here's this old broken-down thing with viruses and whatever. You can have that and... You know, why would we give the church something new? Why would, why would the church get a state-of-the-art system for, you know, different aspects? Or uh, we send these broken-down minivans to, to a youth ranch, right? Because, uh, well, you know, they get the dregs. Um, what am I illustrating? Oh, okay. Uh, the attitude behind giving. All right? The attitude behind what is acceptable and not acceptable is unto the Lord. Okay. And does the Lord get first place or does the Lord get leftovers? What's he supposed to get? Okay. So, uh, we read in Deuteronomy 23, um, even before verse 18, but you've got different, uh, there's a context here throughout the entire chapter. But um, verse 18, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, where is the money coming from? How are you earning that income? How are you earning that income? Okay, and whether it's female or male prostitution, any of the, the wickedness that could be very lucrative in uh, the ancient world and lucrative, I guess, in modern times also, um, is, is absolutely unacceptable. Outrageous and not acceptable. It is an abomination. There's the word abomination in verse 18. It's a word that we probably need to use more often these days. <laughs> All right? Only because uh, our culture has redefined everything where what used to be immoral is now moral. And, uh, and morals aren't what you think they are anymore. Morals are relative to whoever the person is. And what, if you're fine with it, then it's moral. All right? And they've redefined moral, immoral on a... On a whatever you're fine with, kind of a basis. All right? 
No, this is an abomination. Not only is it wrong, but it is so thoroughly wrong that it sparks God's wrath. That's how wrong that it is. Okay, That's what abomination signifies. Beyond that, blood money has a specific curse that's attached to it in Deuteronomy 27.25. Blood money has a specific curse that's attached to it. Deuteronomy 27:25. You know, you think about money earned by sinful activity. I, I don't have a story of my own, so I've got to tell one of Ralph's stories. <laughs> um, maybe someday I'll have a story of my own to, to illustrate, but um, until then I'll tell Ralph's story over and over again. But evidently, back in the 1960s or 50s, when he was a young pastor and had some ministry in Alaska. Ralph and Dorothy went up to Alaska and had some ministry up there over a summer. Um, the story is told that the uh, that a woman in Ketchikan, Alaska, um, got saved, and she got saved and was rejoicing in her salvation and was uh, finding a way to end her former manner of life and to um, she closed down her business. She liquidated those assets and she was looking to start over in a different line of work. And uh, she was looking to bless the church with some of her uh, her uh, income. All right. Well, it turns out, though, that her former manner of business was uh, a house of ill repute. All right. And she was a madam of a brothel in Ketchikan, Alaska. And But she got saved. Okay. And she wanted, she was making a very large donation to, uh, to the church. And wouldn't you know, the scandal that erupted about, ooh, we can't take that money. Oh, that's, that's money of wickedness. Ooh, that's money that was earned by whatever. By, you know, they, they, they had sinful activity going on when they were, when they were making that money. And uh, anyway, to hear Ralph tell the story, he was like, how dare you? <laughs> this girl is saved now, and she wants to, to bless the Lord. She wants to respond in gratitude for, you know, almost like the biblical story of the woman with the hair and the, the tears and the oil. And uh, he says, how dare you? You want you want Here's a brand new believer. We better teach her something about grace right here, right now. <laughs> and different, uh, different things there. So that's... That's uh, not my story, but it, until I get one of my own, I'll have to keep telling, keep telling Ralph's story uh, related to that. You know, at what point? Okay, maybe it was originally earned in in a in a terrible way. Okay, can cursing be turned to blessing? Can something that was used for wickedness now be used for good? Right. I believe Romans eight twenty eight applies or. Or uh, Genesis 50, and Joseph told his brothers, you know, what you meant it for evil, God used it for good. And so, uh, whatever the case. Now, saying that, of course, we can accept a grace gift for the right reasons, but we also expect, um, you know, go and sin no more, right? <laughs> we also expect that, okay, you're out of that line of work now. We're not going to continue. We're not going to take the same kind of gift next year and the year after and the year after and the year after. All right. At some point, we uh, <laughs> we say, okay, this, is, uh, this isn't grace anymore. You're continuing in that sinful activity. All right, blood money. Blood money has a specific curse attached to it. Deuteronomy 27:25. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, amen. Now, that's a part of a long chain of curse it is, curse it is, curse it is, curse it is. Okay? You see that? Every single verse here. Uh, in uh, these curses in chapter 27. you got the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing, and they're reciting the, the curses and the blessings. So you got all these curses. And then you get the blessings in the next chapter. Um, yeah, we don't need to read any of the rest of those. But uh, specifically, blood money in verse 25. The perversion of justice. 
the uh, the liars, the false testimony, the bribes. The uh, we're, we're violating so many things here at the, on, on so many different levels in this because we're attacking the image of God. Any murder is an attack on the image of God. Any murder is an attack against life, and God is life and in the provision of life for us. So murder carries capital punishment because of that. But then not only are you doing that, you're compounding the discipline because you're perverting justice. And the perversion of justice does what? It attacks the justice of God. It attacks the righteousness of God. It attacks the lies that are produced in the, in the process of that. attacks the very truth of God. Okay? And so this is, this is why murder and lying are so linked together repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. We have constantly the links between lying and murder, lying and murder. And the Bible does that in powerful ways. And I like the way it does that in powerful ways. And punishable by death. They're both uh, uh, violations of God's very essence. They're satanic attacks on the nature of who God is. Our culture, of course, what's a big deal? You know, little white lies, they're okay, come on. Some, some lies are good lies. And uh, we, 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 we draw this huge distinction between murder, bad, and lie. And lie is okay, not so bad. God pins them together more often than not in... Uh, in uh, different applications. So, cursed is he who accepts a bribe. So, forget the one giving the bribe. How about accepting the bribe? Accepting those funds to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. So, they're under a curse. They cannot take blood money. To take blood money would put them under a curse. Uh, never mind, of course, that they're the ones who paid the blood money. I just find that whole that the irony of that is is just... It'd be laughable if it wasn't so sad, all right? These holier-than-thou religious types that uh, that paid the money in the first place to get Jesus crucified, and now they can't accept the the, the blood money. They're the ones that, that spent it. They're the ones that provided it. That's what makes this whole episode so uh, tragic. All right, thirdly, sacrifices to the Lord are inadmissible when they cost us nothing. Here's another principle. Sacrifices to the Lord are inadmissible when they cost us nothing. There's a lot of things we could study related to this. I just gave basically four, four real short points on why donations to a ministry could be a problem. <laughs> okay? Um, why, why they couldn't take the money for the temple. Well, what are the circumstances in which we would have to turn away money? Do we have a policy at Austin Bible Church whereby we don't accept uh, funds in, in certain ways or from certain folks or for certain reasons? Yes, we do. They're actually written into our Constitution. All right? Policies. We don't accept money from unbelievers. We, we are a flock that, that has a grace policy in our finances and the, the body of Christ will provide for the body of Christ. So, knowingly, if we know about it or don't know about it, I guess that's a difference, right? 2 Samuel 24, 24. Somebody says, well, what about if years from now we find out that the, the money that came from Venice, uh, from Vienna, Austria, that the $600,000 miracle that came, what, what if years from now we find out that that came from an unbeliever? You know? What if? <laughs> years from now we find out whatever. Okay. <laughs> But the principle is the principle. If we know about it at the time that we accept it, okay, we didn't know about it at the time we accepted it. You know, as far as uh, trying to retroactively go back and undo things and the, all the rest of that, goodness. All right. 2 Samuel 24, 24. Here's another principle. Sacrifices to the Lord are inadmissible when they cost us nothing. And I find this... Uh, Another aspect of grace giving that sometimes believers don't think about. The um, David's under his divine discipline here, and uh, for his pride and taking the census and numbering his troops and the things here that he's going to come under discipline. And he's even given options, uh, which is a blessing. I've, uh, the Lord's never asked me my preference. <laughs> you know, say, Pastor Bob, I'm about to about to smack you good. Which, which, you know, when you want door number A, B, or C. 
But David, uh, the prophet Gad comes to David and says, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And so uh, he gets A, B, or C here. Seven years, uh, three months, or three days. And it's either uh, famine or uh, enemies. Anyway, he said, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. And boy, I agree with that. <laughs> if I'm given my choice, I'll put me in God's hands every time. Don't put me in man's hands. Okay, Put me in God's hands every time. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 in three days of pestilence. And you think there's consequences when spiritual leaders are uh, out of the will of God? Do, uh, you know, do congregations suffer because of the darkness their pastors are involved in? Do, do wives and children suffer because of their moron husbands and their darkness and rebellion against the Lord? Are there consequences for the spiritual leadership that's not walking right? Absolutely. Does a nation suffer when, he, when they have a president of, of darkness? All right. And so when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity. See, David knew that his mercies are great. He's abounding in loving kindness. He is quick to forgive. And uh, said, it is enough. It is finished. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. This too, I hope, is on deleted scenes. I want to see the Blu-ray on this with the... You know, that sword right over the field there. So David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Arauna the Jebusite. It's kind of even Jewish. Okay. The Jebusites were the, the, the pagans that, that, that lived here before David conquered Jerusalem. So why is this guy still alive? Okay. I think he, he was saved. I think he, he, uh, he remained in Jerusalem as a resident of Jerusalem, as a believer, as a Gentile believer. So David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him, and Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to this to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Now here's where we get to the to the real issue. Um Aruna's just going to give it to him. He doesn't want to accept the funds. He doesn't want to accept the, the, the money. Um, kind of similar to how uh, Ephron was going to give the, the cave to Abraham, right? And Abraham said, oh, no, no, I'm going to pay for this. Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Here's the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, the yokes of oxen for the wood. Why does Arana have all the sacrificial material ready to go? I think he's a believer. All right. And he's not Jewish. I don't think he typically will, will uh, worship with, uh, with the Levites or with the Jewish uh, Levitical system. I think he's a Gentile believer and he offers his own sacrifices as a patriarchal priest and uh, in, uh, in his own, in his own uh, capacity as, a, as an Old Testament believer. Everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arana, and this is the principle, and I think it's a valid principle. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Which cost me nothing. And I think it's a valid principle. And I, I phrased it that way under point C. Sacrifices to the Lord are inadmissible when they cost us nothing. At least that was David's conviction. All right. That's my conviction. Maybe other believers come to the same conviction. You know, is, 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 is that the... Uh, is that the standard by which we, we uh, offer to the Lord our, our God the, 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 the first fruits of, of His grace provision towards us? Do we, uh, do we look at, at, our, at our finances or at our income and say, well, it's free money, didn't cost me anything anyway. I guess I can give some of that to the Lord. <laughs> All right. Um, 
the idea that uh, that my service, my sacrifice, is something that that somebody else is going to provide for, that costs me nothing. Is that how I value my my devotion to the Lord? Is worth nothing? That if it cost me something, I wouldn't give it. What's my attitude with respect to my giving? So, anyway, David said it was his conviction. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. It'd be like coming into the temple with empty-handed. He said, don't come into the temple empty-handed. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And is there a link between the 50 and the 30? No, none at all. None that I can find anyway. (laughs) All right. Uh, the price for the Savior was 30 pieces. The price for the field was 50, and I can't find any link between them. Um, so David built there an altar to the Lord, offered burnt offerings, peace offerings. This is the very field, by the way, that will become uh, the, the, the place where the altar will sit in, when, the, when Solomon builds the temple. Uh, Jewish legends and traditions, it's the very place where Isaac was offered up. Other different legends related to that. Okay. Here's another principle. Blind, lame, and sick offerings are likewise inadmissible. Blind, lame, and sick offerings. Blind, lame, and sick offerings. Malachi 1, 6 through 8. Blind, lame, and sick. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. You know, in normal circumstances, in just temporal life, even unbelievers, a son honors his father. That's just kind of normal. And a servant his master. That's just kind of normal. That's the way it works in the servant-master relationship. There is respect. Or they're supposed to be. If there's not, there's consequences. There's honor, or they're supposed to be. If there's not, there's consequences. And so, since that's the way things normally go, why is Israel so rebellious? (laughs) Why can't God have even the normal respect that a father or a master would be entitled to have? So if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Oh, priests who despise my name. Now, first of all, says the Lord of hosts. <laughs> says Yahweh Tzavayoth, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of the armies. So this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, Jehovah Jireh talking here. This isn't uh, Jehovah Rapha talking here. This is, uh, you know, he didn't select a friendly name to use in this, in this uh, rebuke. He chose his combat name. He chose his adversarial name, the name of the of the victor who always wins name. Okay, when the Lord God of hosts is speaking to you, that better get your attention. Especially when he says, "O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Acting all innocent, acting all ignorant, asking like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. We, we love you. How have we despised your name? He says, well, I'll tell you. This is very common. There's a lot of this in Malachi, this, this rhetorical but you say, and let me tell you. Um, you want to know how you despise my name? Yeah, you say you love me, but look what you do. You know, if you say one thing and do another, what's the reality? <laughs> right? You know, words are cheap. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? Well, let me tell you. In that you say the temple, of the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? It's supposed to be a lamb spotless and blameless. Because it's a lamb that's painting a picture of the coming Messiah. And his sinless perfection. And you're going to throw a blind sheep up there? Is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer to your governor? 
Remember when they came back from their captivity, they, they didn't restore the Davidic throne. All right. They had a Persian governor. They had a man that was answerable to Persia. Why not offer to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Is that how you treat me? Would you treat your governor that way? And it's interesting. Believers treat one another in shameful ways. They wouldn't treat their, uh, they wouldn't treat their boss that way. <laughs> if, they, if, they treated their, if they spoke to their boss the way they speak to their pastor, they speak to another believer or you know, a sister or whatever, they'd get fired. Because they, they, they're, they're approaching with uh, an attitude or anger or mental attitude sin or whatever or just lack of respect or whatever. And Really? You treat your enemies that way? You treat your friends that way? Who do you treat that way? If you met the governor, would you, would you address him like that? You know, and even if you don't like the guy, you still acknowledge the respect. You know, if a police over pulls you over because your sticker expired six days ago, you're going to show him some respect? You know, would you offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You know, what is it you expect God to do? Now, our gifts to him are not a bribe. We're not, we're not, we're not bribing him and, and, and impressing him with uh, the quality of our worship so that then he in turn is a, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a gimmick or a puppet thing where he dances to our tune because we made him happy with our, with our offerings. Okay, we're not placating God like the Greeks would placate Zeus and Poseidon and so forth. Okay, it's not what it's about. But you still have to ask the question when you're when you're throwing him these these sick and lame and weak and scrap meat. I mean, really? And what is it you're you're thinking the Lord's going to do for you? <laughs> okay. Oh, I love verse ten. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. Is there a Levite anywhere that will just go ahead and just turn off the lights? <laughs> Shut the gates. Put a big closed for business sign on the front. Oh, that there were one, even one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Why are you still in business? Why are the doors still open? You know, a ministry that is so displeasing to the Lord, why... Why do they still have a building in town? What are they doing? So they might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Okay. So anyway, we've got these principles, and, and obviously they can't accept the money. Um, there are uh, circumstances in which offerings are not acceptable. The funds are not acceptable. And uh, there's just four short points there related to uh, other problems that may arise in terms of accepting offerings. Point five then. The last element here related to the suicide. Even these machinations serve to glorify God via fulfillment of prophecy. Even these... Schemes, plots, sins, machinations serve to glorify God via fulfillment of prophecy. See, a sovereign God maintains sovereign control even with volitional creatures and the sin and evil and wickedness they get involved with. Scripture says, I will cause the wrath of man to glorify my name. And it's interesting, as we see in Matthew 27, Scripture is being fulfilled. So his betrayal is not a good thing, but it can work together for good. It does work together for good. We can't say that betrayal is good, or that bribery is good, or perversion of justice is good, or there's nothing good about what's happening here, but it is going to work together for good because it's a part of the Circumstances and details that will result in the maximum eternal glorification of Jesus Christ. 
It's going to result in him being uh, given a name above every name. It's going to result in you and I having our sins forgiven. It's going to be result in uh, the redemption of, uh, of humanity. It's going to result in the cleansing of the heavenly temple. It's going to result in the covenant, the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, then uh, being ratified for the nation of Israel in their millennial kingdom. There is a lot that's going to be happening tomorrow on that Friday, April 3rd, because on this night, the, uh, the traitor sold him out. So they conferred together with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers for this reason. That field has been called the field of blood to this day. That is, it still has that nickname even up to the time that Matthew wrote this gospel. Okay? And depending on what you accept as a dating for the writing of Matthew, it's been a couple decades. It's been a while. But to this day, that same field is still known by that name. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Scripture was fulfilled. The activity of Judas fulfilled so many scriptures, fulfilled all the typology of Ahithophel, fulfilled the typology of Absalom, fulfilled all the betrayals that David went through. Uh, all of the laments when David wrote his psalms, uh, his heel is lifted against me, the one who ate bread with me is my enemy. Uh, all of these psalms of David lamenting his betrayers were quoted as fulfilled in Judas Iscariot. All right, and the, the eating the bread, partaking in the night in which he was betrayed and all these things. Scripture is being fulfilled. Now, Jeremiah is cited, but, Jeremiah, but Zechariah is quoted. Jeremiah is cited, but Zechariah is quoted. And we're okay with that. That's not a problem. Some folks uh, think it is, or they, they view it as an error on uh, Matthew's part. We'll show you why it's not. Yes, the, the, the exact quotation comes from Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. The, uh, the exact quotation is from Zechariah, but Zechariah won alone in references to potters, to the potter's field. All right. Zechariah was actually building on something that had preceded him, given by Jeremiah. And while not quoted, he is referenced. Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter and his smashed vessel. So point B, Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter. And it wasn't Harry Potter, all right? A potter and his smashed vessel. We've got two chapters in Jeremiah that are absolutely significant. Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter and his smashed vessel. And then, yes, Zechariah spoke and wrote about a rejected shepherd about a rejected shepherd, Zechariah 11, 4 through 14. And so, in the 12 minutes we have, <laughs> this may be a whole lesson all on its own, but let's go to Jeremiah 18. Let's see what these contexts are. <coughs> Jeremiah 18 and followed by Jeremiah 19, back-to-back -back chapters. If the Lord delays long enough, uh, it's a book I'd love to teach someday. I'd love to teach Isaiah and Jeremiah. Possibly on a 11 o'clock basis like we do in Romans. Um, maybe uh, a, a chapter a Sunday or something like that. Um, I don't know if I'd live long enough to do. <laughs> Let's see. Three chapters a year. For 66 chapters, that's 22 years to get through Isaiah. And then another 52 chapters. That's another 17 years, 18 years to do Jeremiah. So 22 and 18, 40 years. 40 years. Okay. I'm young enough. I could, uh, let's see. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Some of you folks might not be here in 40 years. but <laughs> All right. Jeremiah 18. Yeah, I don't want to be here 40 years from now. I'm, I'm waiting for that trumpet. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. Okay. Arise and go down to the potter's house. You can do a word study on this if you want. Go find the, the Hebrew for potter. Um, and you're going to find the extensive uses here in these two chapters of Jeremiah, as well as the significant use in uh, Zechariah 11. And that's pretty much it. That is virtually it. There's the, the other uses outside of these chapters for potters in the Old Testament are pretty uh, scattered and irrelevant. They're not really connected to the study that we're looking at today. But when we're looking at the crucifixion of Christ, when we're looking at his rejection in the first advent and God's discipline upon the Jewish people, the Jewish nation and their destruction, it's these chapters that have their, their, their uh, significance uh, in the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So let's see what it says here. Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will announce my words to you. Now remember, Jeremiah is a prophet, Jeremiah is a priest, but he's not going to get this message in the temple. He has to go down to the potter's house. There is where he's going to get a revelation. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. Um, <laughs> I think Jeremiah was probably like me, you know, not really mechanical and not really uh, crafty. Uh, he was making something on the wheel. I don't know what he <laughs> That's a potter. That's a wheel. He's making something. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. He's in the process of making it and it just, it, it was spoiled. It wasn't right. So what does the potter do? He says, all right, let's make a new vessel. And he sees this and that's what he had to see for this message to come. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does? Declares the Lord. And we've got to be careful with this. And, and I'll probably just slow down and we'll, we'll, we'll focus on this more next week. Okay? Only because there's such blasphemy that comes out of this. Okay? Replacement theology will use this. Replacement theology will say, See, the potter's done with Israel. They blew it. He's going to make a new pot now. It's us. We're the church. We're replacing Israel. Okay, is that what this chapter is about? All right. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. So is God just kind of uh, fickle? Is he kind of haphazard? Does he change his mind at the drop of a hat? No. In his foreknowledge, he knows what the response is going to be. And it may be that he gives that, that destruction message as the warning that they respond to. And point, uh, case in point is, is uh, Nineveh, right? With, with uh, the prophet Jonah. Or, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. Maybe he has a, a word of encouragement, a word of blessing, saying uh, the course of this nation is going to be, uh, it's going to be great. Okay? God shed his grace on me. <laughs> you know? Here's a nation that I'm going to provide for. I'm going to provide abundantly. They're going to have wealth. They're going to have resources. They're going to have uh, provision beyond anything that has ever been seen on this earth. God can do that. Okay? Every nation, every land, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay? The problem is, though, is that they may rebel. Uh, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Okay? I will repent. And that bothers some people because God doesn't repent. God's not a man that he should repent. But he uses the language of accommodation here to explain he does change his, uh, his dealings with that nation. He doesn't change himself, 
but his dealings with that nation do change. So now, then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you. So this is now the warning. I am fashioning calamity against you. Does that mean make it inevitable? Does that mean that there's nothing they can do about it? Does that mean that they're just doomed? Or can they respond to the promise of the calamity? Can they repent? Can they, can they fall on him for mercy? And, and, and um, that's right. That's why there is the warning. Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way. You see, it's, it's a repentance opportunity. He's urging them to turn back and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it is hopeless. <laughs> All right, it is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans. Each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. All right, well, that's, that's honest enough. All right, now, this is a, a message for Jeremiah, for Jeremiah's day. It's applicable for Jeremiah, for Jeremiah's day. Remember, he was the prophet inside Jerusalem when the Babylonians brought the walls down and destroyed everything. He, uh, he was giving the, the, the live action reporting from the inside, watching his nation destroyed around his ears. That's why I want to teach this book someday. I think we may need this doctrine. Watching our nation destroyed around our ears. Um... But where else does this prophecy have a fulfillment? Okay, There is another destruction of Jerusalem upcoming. There's a destruction of Jerusalem that's coming up in 70 A.D. at the hand of the Romans. There's another eschatological destruction of Jerusalem coming up in the tribulation under Antichrist. Again, the Romans, the eschatological Romans. All right. So we have, every time we look at a passage that deals with destruction of Jerusalem, we have to, have to rightly divide the word of truth and evaluate those prophecies for their immediate application in the, in the Old Testament times, and then for the eschatological application that could be first or second advent or both. All right. We need to, to relate each of these passages where they properly, uh, where they properly fit. All right. So there's the warning in chapter 18. Next chapter over. Um, and I'm skipping a lot here, um, verses 13 through the end. Um, <clears throat> you'll find that they don't uh, they don't respond well, and, and they say it's hopeless in verse 12, and and um, they're convinced that they're doomed. Uh, they're also mad at the prophet. <laughs> okay, it's his fault. Verse 18, come on and strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. So, uh, you know, when you're negative to God, when you're not happy about the discipline God has you under, okay, kill the messenger, <laughs> right? Blame it on your pastors, on your churches, on the Bible, on, you know, you've got to be mad at something, right? So uh, <laughs> there it is. So we get down into, and yet, what's, what's beautiful, though, is um, his own prayer and, and um, intercession here. Jeremiah still praying for him. All right. So we get to uh, chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar. So that's a follow-up. All right, Jeremiah, you saw what he was doing. Now, uh, your turn. Okay, you're going to be a, a, a priest, a prophet, and a potter. Okay, <laughs> go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now, where do you think the geography is on this place? Where do you think this valley of Ben-Hinnom is? Where do you think the field is that's going to be known as Hakeldama? Where do you think Judas Iscariot went and hanged himself? You think there's a correspondence? Okay. Let's see if I can put some maps together for next week. It'll be kind of fun to look at this. All right. Ben Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the Potsherd Gate. 
and proclaim there the words that I tell you. So he's going to go on location and deliver this message. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Kings of Judah. How many kings does Judah have? Well, yeah, just typically one at a time, right? Um, but the idea that there's plural being addressed here, what does that tell you? We're actually, look, we have a message that's not just going to a single king in one day, in one time frame, all right? It's a message for Judah in their history. It's a message for Judah moving forward, for the current king, the next king, and any, any additional kings on their way. Inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle. Okay? The message will make your ears tingle. And um, we'll have to come back next week and uh, get the rest of this. So we'll get the rest of this next week. We'll also look at Zechariah 11 next week, and we'll see the nature of things when... Multiple prophets are combined into a single synthesis. Uh, who gets the headline? Okay. Who gets the headline? It's like who gets the top billing on the marquee if you have multiple groups together in, the, in, a, in a, an opening act and a main act, for example, in a concert. Who gets top billing when you have different prophets that are being compiled together into a, into a synthesis? Okay. Jeremiah does. It's not, not the minor prophet. It's, well, we'll see that. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for this opportunity once again to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.